All right, we are, as you know, working through <clears throat> pardon me, uh, the Gospel of John. We're all the way to John chapter 18. We're running out of chapters, so we'll probably finish this up before the end of the year. Now, up until now, we have been uh, going kind of verse by verse through each chapter, but we're hitting the part that's very familiar. Uh, Jesus' trial, going into his... Uh, crucifixion, his resurrection, all that stuff. And so what I'm going to do, instead of going verse by verse for this next little bit, uh, we're going to try and kind of, I'm just going to assume these stories are super familiar. And uh, I could be pulling from any of the four Gospels, and I'm not going to tell you which one because that would just take a long time. Uh, so we'll just pull the whole story together, and then I'll kind of cherry pick some verses in John that I want to talk about. Is that Okay. Uh, I hope so, because that's how I planned it. Um, anyway, so uh, we're just going to kind of look at the big picture here. And I've given you in your notes, if you want to look at your notes, you can open your Bible to John chapter 18. Uh, we'll be getting in there. Uh, but in your notes, there's all the verses if you want to go and compare in the four different Gospels uh, where all these things happen. I'm not going to go and read all of that, because it would be a lot. Uh, but there are basically five things that happen on the night Jesus is betrayed. There's the garden prayer, there's Jesus' arrest, there's a religious trial, there is Peter's denial, and then there is his civil trial that starts that morning, uh, followed by, of course, his crucifixion and resurrection. So as we look at that, all of the Gospels cover this, except for, in, and John has been a unique Gospel anyway, it covers things that the others don't, uh, and I, I don't know why. I'm going to have a talk with John when we get to heaven about this. I don't know. It might be like, I don't know, 10,000 years before I can get an appointment with him. But eventually, we'll have a talk, and I'll go, why didn't you cover the garden prayer? That was like my favorite part of all of these five things. Um, and he just covers it in one verse. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the book Kidron, and there was a garden, and he and his disciples entered. And that's it. That's all he tells you. But we know from the other Gospels that they had a serious prayer meeting in that garden, right? And so even though it's not in John, I want to talk about it anyway. And, and because I can, I will. All right? That work? Right, good. Okay, so just going to look at these five things today. And the first one is the garden prayer. And, and again, I'm, I'm assuming most of you are super familiar with these stories because this is the stuff we talk about the most. So uh, what I want to do is, is, is encourage you to not miss things because of your familiarity. So let's dig a little bit into what's actually going on here. So uh, he tells, they go into the garden, and he's just done his discourse after the Lord's Supper, which we looked at, John 14 through 17. And now we're in the garden, and Jesus says, let's have a prayer meeting, basically, because he's distressed, because he knows everything that's getting ready to happen to him just an hour or two from now. He knows that there's already a gang with clubs gathering with Judas to come and arrest them, and that's coming soon, and he knows what comes after that. He knows all this stuff, and so he's distressed. And so he tells his disciples, watch and pray with me. And he says something interesting. He says a couple things interesting. He says, Pray that you don't enter into temptation. And he says, 
uh, he's asking three of the disciples to come apart and specifically be with him in the garden while he's praying. And he says, I know that your spirit is willing. I know you want to do this, but your flesh is weak. Um, because their flesh is weak, what happened? They all fell asleep. Now, you guys have never fallen asleep in a prayer meeting, right? But they did. And in fact, it says that they fell asleep because their hearts were so grieved. Uh, so they, were, they fell asleep from sorrow. So they had some inkling that something bad was going to happen, even though they didn't fully understand it all. But what I want to focus here is the watch and pray. Uh, Jesus tells them that especially uh, when temptation is coming, and temptation is coming to all of them that night. This is the night that Peter will betray Jesus three times. And so they're all going to be tempted. They're all going to run. And he says, when temptation comes, it's time to watch and pray. And it says that it will strengthen us. Now, here's what I want you to get out of this, guys, because it's easy. Uh, we're going to try and apply this to our lives. And it's easy to apply this to Jesus and the disciples, and that's a pretty intense moment. But I want you to see, and I'm not going to look at them, but I've given you four verses there where Jesus is specifically talking about the end times. He's talking about wars and rumors of wars and all the things that are going to happen. And in that context, four times, the advice he gives the church is watch and pray because you don't know the hour. You don't know when it's coming. You better be ready. Remember, he says it in the midst of the parable of the, the ten virgins, watch and pray. You don't know when this is going to happen. I want to submit to you that it's a simple point that the times we are in are watch and pray times. That uh, wherever you decide we are in the end time process, uh, we're headed that way. And in many ways, uh, the church will get lighter, but in many ways, the world will get darker. And it's a watch and pray time. And it is not something the church has traditionally been super great at, is it? And so let's just go, okay, let's get better at it. Let's learn to watch and pray. Let's learn in our own lives when we have temptations, when we have small things. Let's learn as a church together as we look at the nation and the world getting darker. Let's learn to watch and pray. It is the, and I can't emphasize this enough, it is the primary thing Jesus told us to do in the end times. Watch and pray. Not have, you know, more meetings and better TV, right? Okay, now, a couple reasons he wants them to watch and pray. One, as we've said, um, their flesh is weak and he wants to strengthen them. So we have this principle in prayer. Prayer strengthens our spirit man. Jesus, after he had prayed, what happened? You remember? An angel came and strengthened him. Now, I don't know if you'll get an angel or just the Spirit of God will do it or whatever, but how many of you could use strengthen now and then? How many of you have experienced feeling really terrible in some way and praying and feeling strengthened? It's almost like the Word does what it says, isn't it? It's almost like Jesus knew what he was talking about. And so we want to pray for us because it strengthens us, especially in end times temptation, especially in dark times. And so I love in Jude, uh, there's only one chapter, Jude verses 20 and 21, uh, where he talks about how to build ourselves up. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not going to do the teaching now. I'm pretty sure he's talking about praying in tongues there. Uh, if you want to believe it's something else, that's fine. Just pray any way you want. 
but build yourselves up praying. He says we build ourselves up praying. It, it, it helps us, even when we don't see that it's helping us. So we build ourselves up praying in the Holy Spirit. It does one other thing. It says keep yourselves in the love of God looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So getting in this place of prayer with Jesus tends to keep us in the love of God, which if you recall from John 15, he told us to abide in his love. Well, how do we do that? Well, sounds like prayer will do it, doesn't it? You with me? Okay. So, one, we want to get that. I just, I want to beat that drum hard, guys. We need to be a praying people. We need to be a praying church. It's what the church does. I will just say this because I, I can't resist it. In, it's not in your notes. In Revelation, I always forget if it's 11 or 12, but it's one of those two chapters. It talks about uh, them overcoming Satan by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, not loving their lives to death. It talks about Satan being cast down from the heavens to the earth, and he's furious because he knows his time is short. Now, here's the thing. This war in heaven that casts Satan down in the context of those passages, you know what does it? It's the context of the, the praying saints and the incense. There's a church in the last days that's going to be so powerful in prayer that Satan loses his influence in the heavens and can only work in the earth. I want to be a part of that church. We should learn about prayer. Anyway, enough of that. Uh, hope that whet your appetite. The other part of this, though, is Jesus is in distress. What is he praying? Lord, if there's any way I could not drink this cup, you know what the cup is. The cup is uh, and it's the cup from the Father. It's uh, torture and death and separation from his friends who he's just spent the last three years with. It's isolation and torture and death. And Jesus would rather not if he didn't have to. And so this is his prayer. If there's any way this cup can pass from me, yet not my will but your will be done, right? And that's why he needs to be strengthened. Jesus prays, in one of the Gospels, uh, we're told he prays so intensely that he sweats blood. That's distress, guys. So he is really in distress. And think of it this way. What's he looking for? Hey, could you guys just step and pray with me while I sweat blood? Right? I'm, again, I'll have to wait till my appointment with the apostles to ask them. I'll bet you if I go, what, what do you regret of all the things you did wrong? What do you regret the most? I'll bet you they'll go, oh, I really wish I'd have stayed up with Jesus when he was praying. I really wish I'd have been there and been a comfort to him in his time of distress. You guys ever wish that? you imagine that prayer is not just for us, that it comforts Jesus? I love that he went to a garden before he went to the cross. What do you think he's thinking about? I wonder if he's thinking about when he used to walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, that garden fellowship, that garden relationship. I just need that comfort. I just need that encouragement. I just want my bros here to share with me my burden as I sweat blood. Now, how many of you have read the paper, or looked online, or watched the news, and seen something, and it, and it just distressed you? Anyone? Yeah. Imagine Jesus who sees everything in the earth all the time. And I got to think, sometimes 
prayer that we think is for us is just for him. He's just going, would, would somebody just press into this with me? When we're praying for our nation, praying for uh, righteousness, praying for um, the, the people who are being trafficked, Jesus is going, yes, that distresses me too. Partner with me in that. So we got to see prayer as not just strengthening us, as not just getting what we want. Uh, it's a comfort to Jesus. He wants partners uh, in the things he's doing and seeing in the earth. Amen? All right, but John didn't cover any of that, so that was free. Uh, we'll move on. Point two. Jesus' arrest. So uh, now this will be in uh, verses 2 through 11 here. We see uh, they come to arrest. And again, you know what happens. Uh, Judas has been sent off. He's gone and gathered uh, the guys from the uh, Sanhedrin, the officers with their clubs and swords, and they're coming to arrest Jesus, right? And so Jesus is betrayed by Judas, and his disciples will, of course, all flee, just like he told them they would. So you're Jesus. Here comes a mob, an angry mob to betray you, and all of your disciples are going to run away, and you're by yourself. This is, I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing as a man, he is fully God, fully man, uh, this is probably Jesus' worst day so far. He's sweat, drops of blood, and now he's alone being arrested. And what I want us to see is, what does he do in his toughest moment, in his worst day, so to speak? Hebrews 13.8, you know this passage says that Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. Are you the same on your worst day, or are you worse? Sometimes I'm worse. Sometimes all it takes is traffic for me to be worse, right? Yes, amen. Careful. Rachel almost amen that a little too enthusiastically. All right. So Jesus, on his worst day, what do we see? Now, again, I want you to, you know, grasp what he's experiencing. I want you to imagine this is you and uh, how you would behave. You, you have a party and you have all your friends over except for one friend can't show up. And the next thing you know, the FBI uh, burst in the door with their guns drawn. And that used to be harder to grasp, now not as much. And you notice that friend that didn't show up at the party is standing behind all the FBI agents pointing, going, that's the guy. And you're going, hey, wait a minute. And then you turn around and all of your friends have run out the back door. You just catch the last one going, and that's you. All right? So this is you, and I want you to imagine how, what sort of fruit of the Spirit you would display at this point because I'm impressed with Jesus's, all right? So let's look. Let's go to verses 4 through 7. Uh, Jesus says, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And I got to wonder about the way he said, I am, because of what happens next. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Yeah. Now you remember, I am is the tetragram in Yahweh. That, that's what, how God identified himself on the mountain to Moses. Tell him, I am sent you. So Jesus, I think, let, the, let a little of his God part 
slip there on the I am thing because he had to encourage them to arrest him. Uh, you know, come on, stand back up, try it again, right? So what I want you to see is he had, it's, it's just as if he's emphasizing, I just want you all to know that I have complete power of God right now. Uh, I can knock you all down with two words anytime I want. And uh, you're not doing this. I'm doing this. It's consistent with John 10, verse 18, where he says, No one takes my life from me. I have been given power from the Father to lay it down and to take it up again. So it's almost as if he just wants to make the point, you guys aren't really in control. Now stand back up and arrest me. All right? So first of all, in his moment of greatest distress, he never loses sight of who he is, and he's in power. And his power, though, is submitted to God's purpose. He didn't have to be arrested. He could have dealt with them, right? But he's taken the power of God and submitted it in humility to the purpose of God in this moment. Something we could learn there. Verses 8 and 9. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he, therefore, if you seek me, uh, let these others go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke, of those who you gave me, I have lost none. So it makes me think of John 10, where Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. Now, I, at this point, probably would be concerned about me. Jesus is not. He's, going, he's making sure he's still taking care of his disciples. You got me, make sure these others go free. Now, it's really interesting to me who's in charge uh, through this entire encounter. We're here to arrest you. All right, we'll get up and do it. Yes, sir. Okay, now, uh, you got me. These others go free. Yes, got it. Okay. Are you under arrest now? Okay, let's go. I'm not sure how that looked, but I'm, I'm thinking no one there thought they were really in charge. So Jesus is in charge, and what's coming out is he's not focused on himself. He's still focused on his disciples and taking care of them. And then I love verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, because, uh, you know, he's Peter, and uh, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, uh, we don't get it in this gospel, but you guys know what happened. What happened? Jesus put his ear back. Didn't have to do that. And it served Malchus right for coming and arresting God, doesn't it? But Jesus, on his worst day, on his distressing night, when his friends are getting ready to flee and he's just been betrayed by a kiss by Judas, decides, I'm still going to be true to my nature and act with compassion and put this guy's ear back who came to arrest me. I don't know that I would do that or even think of that. Right? So again, I want us to learn, uh, as we look through this, I want us, this familiar passage I want us to learn the character of Jesus, because in a minute we're going to have to apply it. And then in verse 11, my favorite part, Jesus says to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup my Father has given me? I don't have to do this. I can easily call for legions of angels, and they can deal with this. But the Father has asked me to sacrifice my life, and I'm going to humbly obey. So we see humble obedience, modeled by Jesus. Who's impressed? Okay, okay I was hoping more. 
good. Now, it immediately makes me think of Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. And being found, and where it talks about Jesus did not consider it to be uh, wrong to be equal with God. He knew he was fully God. But being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. How many of you, again, are impressed with Jesus, God, who now is seated at the right hand of the Father, who was before seated in heaven, before he came to earth, humbling himself to let a bunch of guys who can't even stand up when he says his name arrest him and kill him. That's impressive, right? So I like that. I'm impressed by that until I went back and read Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Are you ready? Hang on to your seats. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. What? (laughs) We're supposed to think like that? We're supposed to, in our worst day, recognize that we still have the power of God, but it's submitted to Him, care about others more than ourselves, exercise compassion, just humbly obey while they're arresting us? Wow. That's kind of heavy, isn't it? You see what's going on here. This is all an example for us, guys. When we look at this, we can't just look at it as Jesus' awesome story. This is what we're called to. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Let this, this attitude of humble obedience be in you. That's heavy. Now, just to give you an example, this is, un- well, it's not unrelated, it's Whatever, I'm going to do it. So, um, In Matthew chapter 11, there's a passage that I like to pray because I'm a pastor and I get tired. All right? Uh, you, you don't have to be a pastor to get tired. You can get tired for other reasons. I'm, I'm also getting older and I get tired. That's a good reason, right? Anyway, Matthew 11, Jesus promises rest. So I pray that verse because I'd like rest. How many of you would like rest? Yeah, all right. You can pray this verse too, but I want to warn you, it's not what you think it is. Are you ready? He says, and this this is just kind of the evolution of this for me. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I went, yes, rest. I'll take it. And he said, take my yoke. Now, when he says yoke, you know, a yoke is what you hook two animals together with. It just means partnership. It just means partner with me. Walk with me. Walk at my pace. Go where I'm going. He's the big animal. We're the little animal. So he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And I went, yes, I'm partner with you, Jesus. Rest rest. And I'm trying this, right? And, and it's almost as if he's going, you should probably read that verse again more closely. I said, okay, take my yoke, partner. Oh, and learn from me. What am I supposed to learn from you? Well, I'm gentle and lowly in heart or gentle and humble. Oh, So it's not enough that I just partner with you. I have to learn to be gentle and humble. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where the rest is. And I went, oh, dang it. Okay. So, honest to God, I'm trying to apply this. I'm, you know, I'm getting in situations that are stressful or you know, someone sends me an email or whatever, and I'm just going, okay. I'm pausing and going, I'm going to learn from Jesus. How do I respond in my heart with gentleness and humility? And you know what I found? As I began to do that, uh, I, I began to experience more peace and rest. And I went, it! this thing, it's like it works. It's like Jesus knew what he was talking about. If I would partner with him and learn how to be gentle and humble like him, I'll experience more rest. Isn't that good? So you guys I probably can do that too, right? I don't think it was just for me. I think it's for all of us. We can learn from his example of humility and gentleness and find rest in that. And so I'm still working on verse 30. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I'm not sure I fully get that yet, uh, but I'm trying. Maybe I'll understand more later. That might be a later teaching. Uh, but I like what I'm learning. And so I'm trying to learn uh, for my own benefit, not just because God says I should. For my own benefit, I'm trying to learn to be gentle and humble because it's restful. And I like it. Amen? All right. Let's go on. So, he's arrested, and we, what they take him immediately to uh, Annas and Caiaphas uh, for his religious trial. He's going to have a religious trial, and then later he's going to have a civil trial. His religious trial uh, is, you know, they're starting it. It's the religious people that are really having a problem with him. Pilate, he didn't even on Pilate's radar yet. So, uh, they're going to start the trial right away that night, which is illegal. You weren't allowed to have trials at night. You're supposed to wait till daytime when people could show up and lawyers and all that stuff. Uh, and I guess lawyers don't work at night. So uh, anyway, uh, they start this illegal trial, and it literally goes all night into the morning. So he is an enti- the entire evening is spent uh, either in trial or being mocked or beaten. Okay, And they initially take him to Annas, who was Caiaphas' father-in-law. He was the high priest. He's not the high priest now, but he kind of still carries the title of high priest. Uh, Caiaphas is the serving high priest right now. You only have one at a time. Uh, and then the Sanhedrin is the 70 or so uh, leaders of the, Jew- uh, the Jewish religious rulers that, that ruled from Jerusalem, uh, the Jewish community, the religious community. So Somewhere, it's not clear, throughout this night, he's before Annas, and then he's before Caiaphas. And then I think as the sun comes up, and it gets to be daylight, they bring him before that Sanhedrin so they can sort of kind of have a legal trial. And he ends up being convicted of blasphemy by his own words. You remember they bring witnesses, and the witnesses can't agree, and they can't convict him because of the witnesses, and they're really annoyed because they can't convict him because of the witnesses. So Caiaphas just asks him plainly, and he just says, I'm God. And he goes, that's it. And we got him now. Blasphemy. Let's kill him. Right? So that's the way it goes. Now, let's see what we can learn from this. And there, it, this, is, this is good. It's challenging. You ready to be challenged again? You got, you're going for the humility and gentleness, right? Because we're going to need it in a minute. All right. So let's see what we can learn from this. First, Jesus didn't defend himself. Now, this again, it's not just, isn't that awesome Jesus did that? This is an example for us. 
He's giving us a clue here. Uh, this was the great prophecy in Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was as a lamb led to the slaughter, and as a sheep before it shared is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is the passage in Acts that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading when Philip was brought to him, and then Philip used that to preach Jesus to him, right? So it's impressive how humble Jesus was. He just sat there with accusation after accusation after accusation and didn't even bother to defend himself, right? Now, I'm telling you, this is powerful and this is a lesson he wants all of us to learn. In fact, it's such a big deal. When I was, uh, I was, had only been a pastor, this is back in the 80s, I'd only been a pastor for maybe a year or two here. And a friend uh, went to the elders, didn't ask me about it, didn't come to me, went to the elders and uh, told them what a sucky pastor I was and how I shouldn't be a pastor and here's why, right? Now, my first inclination was to go and explain to the elders why this is going on and this guy's just got issues and and God, one of the clearest times I've ever heard God, he said, you will not defend yourself. And I went, okay. And I mean, it was clear, you will not say a word. You won't even bring it up. I went, okay. And so for about two weeks, I know something's going on. I know he's talking to the elders, and the elders, you know, meeting, hearing him out and all that. I hear nothing. Now, uh, long story short, two weeks later, it was nothing, went away. They didn't even, I don't think they even talked to me about it. God took care of it. It wasn't a big deal, right? But for God, it, I mean, I can't tell you how heavy that impression was. It's like God was like, I really want you to learn that you don't defend yourself. Early on, right up front here, you don't defend yourself. I went, okay. Now, I don't know that I've always done that perfectly, but I did learn that lesson. And I, and I know that's his intention. We don't, and, and I'll tell you guys, if you can learn this, there's a beauty in it. I kind of like not having to defend myself. Right? In a, in a world that's growing more and more quick to take offense, and we always feel like we have to explain ourselves, and I'm just like, nah. Nah. I don't have to explain myself to the people who, you know, I'm in a relationship with, who were trying to work through stuff. Other people, I don't have to defend myself. So, again, not just me. Uh, I think God wants us all to get that. Uh, Aaron and I were just uh, talking about this concept, and he was telling me about uh, Mike Bickle, uh, who heads up International House of Prayer, Kansas City. Um, there's a fame. I won't name him, there's a famous evangelical pastor who probably didn't have a lot of charismatic pastor friends because he kind of looked at, you know, the charismatics are the guys that don't study the Bible. They just do emotion. So they kind of didn't look, didn't, he didn't have friends who were charismatic. But he ended up being really good friends with Mike Bickle. And you know what one of the, as Aaron was telling me about this, you know what one of the big things was? He watched Bickle getting accused because if you get famous, you get accused. Uh, you have websites. That's why I'm trying really hard to be mediocre. Because um, then you get websites devoted to why you're, you know, bad. Uh, so, and Mike has those. And so, but this guy uh, ended up befriending Mike and becoming a good friend of Mike because he kept seeing that Mike refused to defend himself. He just, what, he just kept doing what God gave him. 
Isn't that beautiful? Do you understand the power of that? I'm going to show you some more here, but I want to see the second thing Jesus does. The first is that he didn't defend himself. The second was that he didn't have any problem clearly declaring who he was. And we'll go to Matthew 26 for this, verse 63 through 65. But Jesus kept silent. That's the not defend himself part. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. He's had enough. The witnesses aren't getting it done. Just tell me. And Jesus said to him, it is as you said. In other words, yep, I'm him. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. In other words, yep, I'm him, I'm God, I sit next to him, I'm going to come on the clouds of heaven, uh, I'm exactly who you think I am, or who you think I'm claiming to be. And then the high priest tore his clothes and says, he has spoken blasphemy, we don't have any more need of witnesses, we got him, Right? So, Jesus didn't defend himself, and at the same time, he clearly stated who he was. Now, these two things we need to learn. I want to show you the power of this. Uh, Aaron, again, uh, told Rachel and I we needed to watch Jesus' music. Um, uh, it was on Netflix or something, Hulu, I don't know. Jesus' music, fine, it's really good. It details music, uh, Christian music from the Jesus movement up until almost today. Uh, so it's pretty good, especially if, you know, you miss Striper or something. <clears throat> anyway, uh, as he's going through it, he's, he's hitting how some of these things are treated in this video. And uh, I don't know if you remember, Amy Grant was kind of a big deal. Um, Amy Grant kind of fell out of favor when she got divorced and married Vince Gill and had crossover songs and other, you know, stuff like that. And so in this thing, they're interviewing Amy's manager who's trying to protect her from in interviews. They're being very careful to protect her, uh, the questions she's asked and things like that. Well, one slips through, and he's doing an interview, and uh, before uh, he can do anything, the interviewer looks at Amy and starts talking to her about what a sinner she is and all the things she's done wrong to bring shame to the name of Jesus, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, oh, I, mi I missed that one. And he says, before he can say anything, Amy looks at him, and this is brilliant. She goes, oh, I'm so much worse than you know. But by the grace of God, I get up every day and I move forward. Isn't that amazing? You know what she just did? She said, I'm not going to defend myself, but this is who I am. You see it? Guys, we got to get those two things. I don't need to defend myself, but I'm a child of God. I'm not going to defend myself, but I'm under the blood of Jesus. I'm not going to defend myself, but he's my father. I love Jesus. I'm a Christian. Any questions? And now he doesn't tell us, but I imagine that the interviewer was finding it difficult to keep going along that vein. What do you do with that? I'm not going to fight back. I just love Jesus. Isn't that brilliant? Could that be us? That's the lesson I think we're supposed to learn from Jesus' trial. I'm not going to offend myself, but I'm not afraid to tell you who I am. Amen? Okay, number four. We're going to go really fast here because I'm saving this. Peter's denial, is, it's, uh, it's interesting. Jesus prophesied in John 13 that Peter would deny him. 
three times. In John 18, he does. Uh, he also, by the way, prophesied that the disciples in John 16 would all flee, and they do in John 18. So what I want you to see here is it isn't just Peter. Peter got special treatment because Peter spoke up, because that's what Peter does. Peter spoke up, and so Jesus went, well, okay, since you mentioned it, you're going to be a little worse than the others. You're actually going to do it three times. But uh, they all fled, and what I want you to see is this, this is a picture of us, all of us, at some time, in some way, will be Peter or the disciples and be tempted to deny or to flee or to escape uh, the persecution that comes from identifying with Jesus, right? And uh, what I want to see, though, is here's the cool thing. Uh, John chapter 21, Jesus devotes almost the whole chapter to restoring Jesus. And I'm looking at this, and I'm going, and all this stuff, we got big things. The garden prayer, the, re the arrest, two trials. Why is Peter's denial such a big deal? And I realize, oh, in chapter 21, when he restores him, what he does there is amazing, and that's the big deal, which we'll talk about when we get to chapter 21. So uh, that was a cliffhanger. Tune in in several weeks, and we'll get back to that, okay? It is, it's cool. I got for you on that one's cool. I'm, I'm almost ready just to skip there, but we should, you know, go in order. Anyway, going on. So number five, the civil trial. Now, Jesus has, uh, they've, they've, convicted him of blasphemy because he claimed to be God, right? And so they said, that's it. We got him. Let's move on to the civil portion of this trial. Why do they need a civil trial? Because they can't kill him. That is correct. They need a civil trial because they aren't allowed to put someone to death. And it's not going to be enough to just uh, do what they can do, kick Jesus out of church or tell everybody, don't listen to him anymore. That's not, like, that's not doing any good anyway. They've been trying that, and that's not helping, right? So they have to get him dead. And so they need the government to kill him. And so they go to a civil trial, and they take him to Pilate. Now, in verse 14, we see something interesting. It says, now, it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. He did that. We already covered that in John chapter 11. But let's go read that because there's something interesting there. Uh, I'm going to read verses 48 through 53. So they need the civil death penalty because they're determined that Jesus, because of his blasphemy, needs to die. Let's start with verse 48. Uh, John 11 verse 48. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. What are they worried about? Are they worried about religious purity? No. It's politics. They're worried about losing face with Rome and losing their nation. They're worried about losing their position as the Sanhedrin. Rome will come take away our place. We've got to shut this guy down. And it's at this point, Caiaphas says, uh, and one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said unto them, you know nothing at all. Do you not consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish? Now, again, Caiaphas is probably talking politically here. Now, 
this he, did not, uh, this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So I want you to see, God, uh, Caiaphas was clueless. And his heart wasn't right, but he was high priest. And God gave him an accurate prophecy. God just went and used it, even though he didn't get it. We'll talk about that in a minute. And he goes on, it says in verse 53, then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. When did they decide to execute Jesus? Not John 18, John 11. All right? So this was all being orchestrated, and this was all political, and it was going to happen. Now, what I find interesting is this. He has an accurate prophetic word. That is a profound prophetic word. He had no clue what it meant, did he? And so, all right, get your toes up. I'm going to step on them. We need to be a little bit careful when we start mixing the political and the prophetic. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't speak about politics. He does. He speaks about anything he wants because the earth is his and everything in it. But I'm saying is if we aren't careful, we will take prophetic words and like Caiaphas, only view them through a political lens and we will miss the purpose of heaven. We won't get what God's really doing because we can only see the political ramifications in our lives, how it's going to help us or hurt us. And so that saying, let's be very careful when our prophetic and political mix Again, I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying let's be careful. We want to make sure we're getting the perspective of heaven, not just a political perspective. Amen? Amen. Is that enough on that one? All right, get your toes back out. Okay. Now, so let's go. I want to look at a couple of passages here as we go back in this civil trial. Uh, one, uh, first we'll jump to John 19. I want to look at verse 10 and 11. Where am I? There it is. Because um, I want to look at one of the things that Jesus does that's amazing is he keeps his perspective on heaven. Uh, again, I'm, you know, before the governor on trial, I'm thinking about my defense and what I'm going to say and what's going to happen and all that. Uh, Jesus already knows what's going to happen. He's in charge. In fact, he's still looking at it from heaven's perspective, not his own. And so, or not uh, Pilate's. And so in Verse 10 and 11, uh, Pilate says to him, Are you not speaking to me? Because he's not. Uh, Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? And I love Jesus. Jesus said, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Who's really responsible for his death? Not Pilate. Pilate, you're... You're being used, bro. You ain't even in this. God just gave you authority to do this. They're the ones that's doing it. They're the ones that have the greater sin. They're the ones that deliver me to you or using you to kill me. And that's okay. I'm going to work with this. Right? So I love how in the midst of all this, he retains this heavenly perspective. And then I also want to go back and look at, I'm doing it out of order, but I want to look in 18 verse 36 and 37, because there are some amazing things that happen here. Um, and, and again, it's a lesson for us. So 
Jesus answers, because Pilate's trying to figure out what he's dealing with, and Pilate's not having a great day either. If you notice this, Pilate does not want to be here judging this contest, right? Uh, and so he says in verse 36 and 37, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Now, mentally, I want you to underline now. But now, right now, at this moment, my kingdom is not from here. We'll talk about that in a minute. And he goes on, Pilate says to him, therefore, you are a king then. And Jesus said, you rightly say that I am. So he's going to make three points here that we'll talk about. You rightly say that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And then Pilate, being completely unregenerate, says, what is truth? Not knowing that truth is sitting in front of him. Now, here's what I want you to get. In verse 36, I love this. He says, my kingdom, uh, if this if my kings were of this earth, they were, my servants would fight for me. But now, my kingdom's not. Why now? Because it will be. In Matthew 4, uh, Satan tries to get ahead of the game. Remember, Jesus has been led into the wilderness to be tempted. And one of the temptations is Satan takes him up on a high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the earth that belong to Satan now because of Adam's fall. And he says, I'll give you all these if you'll worship me. And Jesus says, no. Uh, it's written... Uh, you'll love the Lord to God, and him only will you serve. And it doesn't work. He gets offered the kings of the earth, right? And he goes, no, they're not. I don't want them. I'm not going to do it. And he tells Pilate, they're not mine now. But what do we know? In Revelation chapter 11, there are seven trumpets. There are seven seals, and there are seven trumpets. On the seventh trumpet, the last trumpet, Jesus returns for his church. And we meet him in the air, and he comes to Jerusalem, and stuff happens. Uh, there's, you know, it's, it's bloody, it's gross. There's a big army in the valley of Megiddo that doesn't survive, right? And we read in chapter 11, verse 15, now the kingdoms of the earth have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Jesus knows the kings of the earth are his. He just hasn't claimed them yet. But he will come. And so that's what I love uh, where he says, but now, now it's not my kingdom isn't from here. But we'll get to that in a couple thousand years. Amen? That's why we're excited about his coming. Now, let's look at the three things he laid out in verse 37 real quick. First, uh, and what I love here is Jesus just is patiently certain of these things. These things aren't real now in the earth or aren't manifest fully now in the earth, but they will be. I'm absolutely certain they will be. These three things are real, and here you go, Pilate. First, um, I am born to be king. Are you a king? Yes. In fact, that's why I was born. Remember in Matthew uh, chapter 2 where the wise men show up and they go, Who, where's this guy born king of the Jews. We know somebody's been born king here today, right? He's born to be king. We saw that in Psalm 2, verses 6 through 8. Yet I, God, have set my king on my holy hill in Zion. Now, this is a prophetic verse, 
for when he comes and enters Jerusalem. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Jesus will possess the earth. The nations will be his. He will be king. He was born for that purpose. It is decreed by the Lord from heaven. It is indisputable. All right. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, he says, uh, I, this is the reason I came in to the, to the world, to be king and to testify the truth. He did that in many ways. He is, in fact, the embodiment of truth. In John 14, we read, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am truth. In John 14, 9, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the exact representation of the Father in heaven. In 17, John 17, 17, he says, your word is truth. And then we already read in John 1, 14, uh, that, uh, that Jesus, the word became flesh and lived among us. So in other words, I'm the living truth. Everything I say is true. He is the embodiment of truth. So he's come to the world to be king and to represent unequivocally here is truth. The things I've said, the things I've done, I, the, the way I've acted, I've represented God from heaven. This is truth. And the third thing is really important where he says, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. In other words, the entire earth will be divided into those who accept the truth and those who don't. And we need to get this. We've, we've hit this a couple times as we've been going through John. But truth will divide the entire earth. It is just that simple. The truth that Jesus brought into the earth will divide the whole earth. We've been, we've a couple times, we've referenced Hebrew 4.12 about his word is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword that divides between soul and spirit and joints and marrow. This is what he's talking about in Matthew 10.34 when he says, do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. And then he talks about how families will be divided based on what they do with his truth. Um, he did come to bring peace in us, but that's not as the world gives peace. We just read that in John 14, right? So he didn't come to bring peace. He came to bring a sword. He came to divide. Basically, I'm king. I will come back and exercise my reign. But before I do, I'm going to come and represent truth, and everyone's going to get to choose between now and then. And there's only two choices. Stewart did something interesting uh, when we were out there in Kansas City in, in uh, the spring, and I'm going to steal it from him right now. Um, it was really good. He said, uh, the word apostle means sent one, and it seems to just pop up in the New Testament. You don't have apostles in the Old Testament, suddenly we have apostles. Where'd they come from? Well, the concept wasn't new or made up. Uh, the Roman Empire, when a new Caesar was inducted, or whatever, however they got a Caesar, uh, they would send out sent ones to proclaim, hey, this guy's Caesar, you know, Nero now is Caesar, or Claudius now is Caesar, or whatever, and they would go from town to town and proclaim the good news, gospel, of the new Caesar. Now, here's the thing they didn't do. They didn't go uh, 
I'm proclaiming to you good news, such and such as Caesar. And if you want, you can accept him as your personal Caesar. You get it? As if there was some other choice. If you want, he'll help you rule your life. And so, is Jesus personal? Yes. Does Jesus want to have an intimate, one-on-one relationship with you? Absolutely. But we have to be careful how we communicate the gospel. If we're not careful, uh, the gospel we've communicated, Jesus wants, to be, wants you to accept him as your personal Savior. Sounds like you have other options. Like, well, I could, uh, maybe I could, uh, maybe he could just help me. Maybe I could be in control of a lot of my life and he could just be in control of part of it. That's not the way the sent one message goes. It's, he's Caesar. He's king. The message of the gospel, the good news is, Jesus is king. He's a benevolent dictator, but he is a dictator. So, if you continue to read Psalm 2, you only have two choices. Kiss the son, perish. Submit to the king, or be his enemy. That's the gospel. The good news is that we have a choice. The good news is that before the good news, you know what you had? Remember the flood? Everybody dies. Now we have a second choice. Jesus died in your place, so you don't have to. There is no third choice. That's the gospel. And so we need to know that, that we're declaring the good news. That Jesus is king. He will come the nations will be his. It's going to happen. All you get to do is choose which side you're going to be on. So let's finish this up. Pilate, believe it or not, tried to avoid killing Jesus three times. The first time, he tried to avoid it by sending him to Herod. Oh, you're from Galilee, huh? That's Herod's district. I'll send you to Herod. Herod was hoping to see a miracle Jesus just sat there and didn't defend himself. It disappointed Herod. Herod sent him back. Uh, The good news was Pilate and Herod became friends. The bad news was Pilate still had to deal with Jesus, and he he wasn't liking it. So the second thing he tried was having Jesus beaten and mocked. I I think the mocking just came with the beating. But he had Jesus beaten and then presented him, hoping that would be enough to satisfy this bloodthirsty crowd, and they'd let Jesus go. But it wasn't enough. And the third thing he tried was to offer, as was the tradition, to let one prisoner go free on their feast, on their festival. Remember, it's the Passover. The Passover is the next day. And, or the, the Sabbath is the next day. And so he says, you want me to release Jesus? And the people say, no, give us Barabbas the murderer, release him. So let me be clear. Pilate didn't kill Jesus. And not even at the end of the day did the religious leaders. At the end of the day, the people Jesus was sent to save called for his death. Yeah. And again, we have to consider in our own hearts, you know, the the radicalness of that choice. John 1, verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, And the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And that was the situation he was in. And yet, he was sent to them. Remember? 
He said when he preached, I was sent to the lost children of Israel. And the ones he was sent to called for his death. So how does that impact us today as sent ones in the name of Jesus? Is it possible that the very ones he's sending us to may want to kill us? Is it possible that the very world he's called us to be salt and light in may want to do us harm? What do we do about that? I know what I want to do about that. But apparently Jesus has a different idea. He wants the same mind to me and me that was in him. And he wants me to declare truth with his humility. So at the end of the day, guys, that's what we learn from this. And that's all he's asking of us is don't defend yourselves. Just declare truth and do it with humility. Just do it with humility like Jesus did. And so we are walking around being sent ones to a world, some who will hear and embrace truth, some who will get angry and want to hurt us. But we're called to speak the truth in humility and just be gentle and humble and loving. That's the, that's the job. Let this mind be in you. It's also in Jesus. Amen? Amen. All right, let's... I went a little longer than I thought. So let's just close with prayer. Let's just take a minute and just wait on the Lord. I know I'm praying this. If you're feeling like following Jesus, you can pray this too. Again, it isn't like he gives us an option. Lord, we are beginning to see as we go through the book of John on a much deeper level, your heart, your love, uh, how, how high your thoughts and ways are above ours. And uh, Lord, it's easy to just go, I could never be like that. But Lord, you said we can. So we, we just pray that you would help us to be a people who love like you love. Uh, Lord, you would help us to be gentle and humble. Lord, you would deliver us from the need to defend ourselves. Lord, that we would experience the freedom of simply resting in the knowledge that you defend us, that you justify us so no one can condemn us, that your blood is enough. Lord, that you would make us bold with the truth. Lord, confident that you are so thoroughly going to rule the earth that telling the truth is the wisest thing we can do. Lord, that we would be so confident that we didn't compromise it in any way. Lord, we just pray to walk in that same attitude that Jesus walked in, that confidence in your reign, in your rule, in your grace, in your power, Oh, Lord, we just believe you can do amazing things with the humble people who are just obeying you. And we ask you to make us like that. Help us, Jesus.